Amen, amen. You may have a seat. So good to see you all. It's good to be God's people together. Amen? Amen. Before we get going, I'd like to invite you to grab a communion pack if you haven't already. If you're joining us online, we encourage you to get some bread, some wine, or some juice that even though we're not here face-to-face together, we can still receive communion together at the end of our time. Also, you can grab a Bible, and if you're out here, would you turn or swipe to Psalm 130? And as you're turning there, I need to tell you, I just learned something. I learned something from what Carla just did, and that is, you guys can talk. So when I ask questions... You've set a new bar during sermons because, man, you guys can get into it. I love that, especially that last picture of that really handsome-looking person that was on stage there. Okay, whatever. Turn to Psalm 130. Hope you're there with me. We are still in this series, Psalms for the Journey. Within the 150 psalms in the middle of our Bible, there's 15 of them that are the soundtrack for the road trip that God's people in Israel would listen to, would sing on their literal pilgrimage up to the hill of Jerusalem, often called in these Psalms Zion, the heavenly place where the temple is, where heaven and earth meet, and where we can go and worship God. So these 15 Psalms of Ascent are songs sung by pilgrims literally three to four times a year when they would travel and ascend the hill for the festival of Passover, the festival of Tabernacles, and other festivals to literally sing on their ascent. But the reason these Psalms endure is because these are pilgrims like us on our journey toward God. And we may not go to a literal temple three to four times a year, but every week we gather together with other people to remember the story of God, to sing together, and to be nourished for our journey back down the mountain and through our everyday life. I hope that this time for you is an encouraging space to meet with God, to meet with God's people, to get your head above the clouds, as it were, and to see reality for what it really is so that you can catch a breath and go back into your week. Is that your experience? I hope so, Neighborhood Church. And that's why we've been looking at these psalms. And tonight, we've got a good one. Psalm 130 is an anguished prayer from someone who is in touch with their brokenness. They know that they ain't perfect, that life ain't perfect, but they still reach out to God, and watch this, they find God reaching out to them. Listen to the words of this psalm, Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? In other words, if you got my rap sheet, who's getting off scot-free? 
The implied answer is no one. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Then he turns to the whole community and he says, Hey, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem to buy back, to bring back Israel from all of their sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. What a song. Most scholars say that this is a post-exilic psalm. Exilic is a word that implies exile. In Israel's history, in the Old Testament, you got to understand that the worst thing they could imagine, the worst thing that was going to be a consequence if they kept rebelling, is that someone would come in, knock them around, and drag them away from their house. That was the exile. And that happened. Babylon came in, kicked them around, and drugged them away far from their homeland. They say that this song may have been written during or after the worst happened. So when you read Psalms that say, out of the depths... It's because I blew it or we blew it. The worst has happened. And within this psalm, you can put yourself in this place. Can I ever come back from that? How many of us have felt what the psalmist feels that we're just buried We've messed up, we've blown it, and we wonder, can we ever come back to God? Will God ever come back to me? What now? The worst has happened, what are we going to do? Well, Psalm 130, if you look there at your phone or Bible, wherever you're looking at the text, you'll see that there's four stanzas to this song. Each stanza is two verses. So the first two verses, one and two, is a stanza. The second stanza is verses three to four, then five to six, then seven to eight. And within these four stanzas, they give us four postures toward God, especially in pain. Four postures that say, even though the worst has happened, you can still reach out and lean toward God Because also within these four stanzas, we see four postures that God has toward us. This is an anguished prayer from someone in touch with their brokenness who reaches out to God and to his wonderful delight and surprise finds that God is reaching out to him. You may be here 
feeling lost in some sin, some struggle, some setback, and you feel like you want to bail out or lean out, and Psalm 130 is here for you right now in this moment to remind you and to pull you and invite you to lean in and find that God is leaning toward you. That's what I mean with postures. That's what we see. The psalmist is saying, I know I can lean in because when I was in the deep waters of sin and shame and struggle, I cried out and I encountered an even deeper grace. My hope for everyone listening is that if you've ever or will ever find yourself in deep waters, you encounter a deeper grace. That's what we sang about. That's what we're reminding each other of. That is the good news that in the deep waters, God meets us with an even deeper grace. Psalm 130 shows us that we can reach out and find that God reaches to us. Our first posture toward God that we see in the first stanza is to cry out. That's the posture. When you're drowning, cry out. We get buried underwater for a couple reasons. The first is because we just live in a broken world. Why do bad things happen to good people? Scripture will never really tell you why. They just tell you where God is. He's with you in the struggle, in the suffering. We're in a broken world. That's one reason we can get buried. Another reason, and the reason I think is the setting for this psalm, whether it's exile on a big picture or just a guy that's blown it on a little picture, is because we suffer and get buried from broken choices. We have a broken world where stuff happens, or we have broken choices, and we suffer the consequence of going against the grain of the universe and against God's way and against the way of love, and we suffer because of it. But either way, whether it's a broken world or broken choices, we can be experiencing drowning and we say, well, can God even hear me? And then we get buried a little bit more and we say, yeah, but will he even hear me? Because I think I really blew it now. It's like when you're a kid and boy, we've seen this all summer at our house where you go and you dive into the pool and you bring your buddy and Emma and Nora have done this all the time this summer. And you, you duck down under the water and you say, try to guess what I'm saying, right? And you go down under the water and you just, you're, and then you come up and you're like, oh yeah, mayonnaise, olives, uh, uh, dachshunds. And it's like, no, I said, I love you. <laughs> you know, it's like, how did, What? And then you say, let's try again. And then you go down underwater and they're going, la, 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 la. And you come over like, I, I don't, I'm terrible at this game. And I think that we can experience this when we've gone so far or life has hit us so hard that we try to cry out, but because God's not doing what we want, when we want, we can say, I'll forget it. He can't hear me anyway. But Psalm 130 says, no, 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 no. No, 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 I'm crying out, this is my song, and in verse 1 to 2 in these stanzas, all I'm asking is, hey God, listen, 
If you go back and look at verses 1 and 2, the only thing he's asking God for is listen, pay attention, listen, listen, listen. Nothing about do this or when, just, hey, God, listen, listen. And what we see in the Psalms over and over and over and over again for the people that are drowning and screaming underwater is that God is within earshot. So if the first posture the psalm shows us is to cry out, the first posture of God toward us that we see in this stanza is to cry out because God is actually always within earshot and he's not indifferent to what you're saying. We think that we're playing the game that my daughters did and we're just screaming into the water and nothing is happening, nothing is being translated. But just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean that God is not receiving it and working in ways for our good. This is the testimony throughout Scripture and yet when we're buried, we routinely forget it. So I'm here to remind you so that you can also remind me next week when I'm drowning and I feel like, God is indifferent. All he asks is listen. And the psalmist will go on to say, because I cried out, I know that he moved. And in the deep waters of sin, I encounter a deep grace because I cried out. So cry out. Here's a takeaway. Resolve to involve God early and often and loudly. So often we want to talk and cry out to everybody else. I do it with you all. You do it with me. But let's resolve as a church to talk to God as much or more as we're talking to everybody else about our junk. Amen? You're not just screaming underwater. You're speaking to a God who's intimately acquainted with the brokenness of our world and our hearts, and he moves with compassion to do something, even if it's not when and how we want. Trust me, God is not indifferent. There's 149 other psalms that bear witness to the fact that God moves because he listens to our cries. So our posture, number one, is to cry out, and God's posture toward us is because God is always within earshot, and he's not indifferent to what you're saying. So what happens when we're real with God? Well, we can bring our whole selves to be transformed. And what we talked about last week is because what we hold back from Him, what we're not screaming out to Him, gets held up in our formation. Because I can't yell at God, because I can't bring it all, well, I'm just delaying the work that God wants to do in me. So the psalmist says, Cry out from the depths, whatever. Bring your whole self to God so that your whole self can be transformed. And I love that the Psalms also give us permission to be real with others. The psalmist wrote these words down so that we all could see and sing. The psalmist says, God is not indifferent. He hears. Resolve to involve God early and often and loudly. And I want to normalize within our church and in our community an authentic faith that is real about crying out when we experience brokenness. I think the world and culture around us is so sick of fake Christians 
Christians are sick of fake Christians. There is too much brokenness, too much pain that we're all experiencing in the last 18 months, too much anxiety, too much baggage to lie about it. Can we normalize authentic expressions to cry out to one another and to resolve to involve God throughout the whole process? That's what we see in the first stanza. The second stanza, the second posture toward God, we see in verses 3 to 4. And that is to taste grace. To taste grace. Kelly, can I have your help real quick on this piano? I'm going to invite Kelly. Y'all give Kelly a hand. Nice. What Kelly is about to do is she's going to play a chord. She's going to play an A minor chord. Listen close. Beautiful, right? But there's a melancholy to it. Did you hear it? Play it one more time. That's because musicians will know that that's in a minor key. And minor is this melancholic sound. One more time, please. This is the soundtrack to verse 3. Can you look at verse 3 again? It's the one that says, if you kept a record of sins, who can stand? Mm. Did you hear it? Did you feel it? And then, verse 4 says, but. And then, we move to a major. Did you hear it? But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. So we can, with reverence, serve you. Do you see the shift? There's this person that's acquainted with his own brokenness, and he says, man, if you pull up my rap sheet, who can stand? And it sounds like, oh, yes. That person really needs to repent if he's just jamming along being like, man, I've got a rap sheet. Yes, so very melancholy. But then there's a shift. And the shift comes with an encounter with a grace that's deeper than the depths of sin and shame and struggle. Thank you, Kelly. The response, the shift from minor to major happens. And the response is gratitude and lightness and worship. And here's the deal. Some of us have come to the cross, experienced forgiveness, and we've sang about the hope we have in the cross, the forgiveness of the one who bore our sins and brought them down to the grave and was raised again victorious so that we might be free from the power and sting of death and sin and evil. And yet... We walk the rest of our week with the minor chord playing because there's still something we've inherited along our faith journey that says, yeah, but he's real disappointed in you. Yeah, I forgave you, but. But in this psalm, 
The but is not, yeah, he's disappointed. The but is with God, there's forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's habit. If you have said yes back to the one who said yes to you, I'm longing for you, I'm forgiving you, I'm bringing you into my kingdom and into my family, your soundtrack is not a minor chord, it's a major chord, and even though struggling and suffering and sin and brokenness remains, ultimately the soundtrack to your life in Christ is the major chord, and the response is adoration and love, not shame and sickness. I love what Brian Zahn says in his book, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. See if this resonates with you. Love is how we are to think about God, talk about God, believe in God. Yet we are constantly tempted to retreat from believing in the full extent of God's love. To us who are so aware of our own sinfulness and selfishness, this divine love seems too good to be true. We are hesitant to believe that the deepest essence of God's being is co-suffering, self-giving, never-ending love. Yet this seemingly inconceivable truth about the love of God is the pinnacle of scriptural revelation. It didn't just happen when Jesus came on the scene because the confession rooted throughout the Old Testament is that God is abounding in steadfast love and he's slow to anger. That God is good, and even for a people who've blown it and the worst has happened, they cry to him, and he hasn't abandoned him, because with God, his forgiveness is his habit. But here's the truth. You won't really live it until you let yourself experience it. Because you can hear me say it, and you can hear gospel of the kingdom of God that has invited you and transformed you and welcomed you, but you're still going to live with a minor key life until you taste it and have an encounter with a grace that is deeper than the deepest sin and shame you're still carrying. Which is why God's posture toward us is to taste grace because forgiveness is God's bread and butter or bread and wine. I love the way the psalm says it. In verse 4, it says that forgiveness is with God. It's like a tool in his tool belt. And then in verse 7, it says, with you is unfailing love. Like on his other hip, he's got like the hammer and the screwdriver. Any job is going to need these two. And with God is always forgiveness and chesed, unfaithful, never stopping, never ceasing love. And so he says, if you kept a record, verse 3, and then all of a sudden God's grace enfolds him and penetrates the deepest places of shame, and he hears this whisper that says, you are more than your worst day, you are more loved than your worst moment, you are set free even though you feel enslaved to this habit and this hurt, I am working this within you, would you release it to me? And all of a sudden he says, oh yeah, with you you're not keeping a record. This has to be tasted. This has to be experienced in the deep places. 
So I love what the anonymous author of this 14th century book called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is rocking my world. It's like one of the greatest books on contemplative prayer, where he's writing these letters to a person and inviting them not just to believe it and to hear it, but to sit and marinate in it. And so the writer says this, God's grace restores our souls and teaches us how to comprehend him through what? Love. He is incomprehensible to the intellect. Even angels know him by loving him. Nobody's mind is powerful enough to grasp who God is. We can only know him by experiencing his love. You've heard it. You've read it. But transformation happens when it seeps into you and transforms you from the inside out. I am, I am sad for Christians that have followed Jesus for five to six decades and they seem to be the least loving people in my circles. It grieves me. And I think we can have the right answers to the right questions, but unless we get God's love penetrating deep within us, we will not be loving. We can only know God through His love. The response after that experience is worship and awe and reverence. And so he says, oh yeah, there's freedom when you realize, listen to this, that God doesn't keep score with his children. He only keeps covenant with them. God doesn't keep score with his children. He only keeps covenant Covenant is the Old Testament word for um, commitment rooted in relationship. And the word for that is chesed. With him there's forgiveness, verse 4, and chesed, verse 7. The two things that God has is rooted in a covenant relationship, not your best or worst day. That's good news for a psalmist in exile and for you mired in shame and struggle. Hear this. This is not on the screen. Write this down. Get this in your bones. Forgiveness is what God does because love is who God is. This is the supreme revelation of Scripture, not just in 1 John, throughout every page of the Old Testament, and writ large in bright letters and the spotlight in the person of Jesus who is the kingdom of God with flesh and blood. Forgiveness is what God does because love is who God is. And the degree that this church embodies it is the degree to which we go and bring others into this life-giving love, which is why I'm going to jump out of order and jump to the fourth stanza to make my third posture, my third point, which is actually to invite others. Invite others. It's out of order because... In verse 7 is when he's talking about this loyal love. And he says, Israel, guys, for real, put your hope in the Lord too. Trust in him. Because when you've tasted this grace, when you've let this love do its work in you, you shouldn't help but to tell about it and to invite others into it. And when you see others lost in shame, you say, let me show you where the grace and forgiveness is. 
So many people in this world talk about, you just got to forgive yourself. There's merit to that, but there's a deeper kind of forgiveness on the cosmic, transformative level that is inviting you to understand that you can be beloved regardless of your performance because you can enter in into a relationship with the giver of life and love itself and he won't keep score anymore. Our job then is to bring others to the doorstep and to keep saying there's life here, there's love here, there's forgiveness here. How? Come to Jesus. The psalmist today would say, oh man, when I see Jesus, that's the embodiment of the Yahweh I was singing to. When I see Jesus, he was walking around with forgiveness and love in both hands. Y'all need to come to this guy. This is what the psalmist is saying. This is what I'm saying. We bring them to the door and we say, in Jesus, say yes. Jesus says, come follow me. How do you get in on this? You say, Jesus, I'm following you. Jesus, you're Lord. I'm giving you my life. And when you give him your life, he gives you life in return. I can't do that for any of you, though. No one's going to have a relationship with Jesus for you. So we invite people to the doorstep, and then if they listen close through the other side of the door into God's kingdom, they hear the voice calling them to their true home. And we say, yeah, man, go. And they say yes to Jesus. They give their life to him. They make their home with him. He makes their home with him forgiven and released from sin, death, and evil. This is the Christian enterprise. God has said yes to you. We see it resoundingly in the cross of Christ. We send all of our sins into him. He turns his cheek and says, forgive them. And when you look upon that, when you're transformed by that, when you say, yes, that, 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 you're forgiven and you're brought into life. We invite others to come and join. And God's posture toward us then, like I just said, we invite others because God is reconciling the world to himself and too many people aren't awake to this reality yet. Second Corinthians 5, he says, where was God? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And so he's told us to go and be ambassadors and say, hey, 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 wake up, wake up, be reconciled. God's standing here like a father looking toward the horizon. His posture is one of open arms and open hands, and he's waiting for you to run back. He's not going to drag you. He's inviting you. He's right here reconciling the world to himself. It's already done. It's done. The cross is God's definitive statement toward the world. I love you. I don't want to lose you. Come. Come and find life. Because love doesn't force people. We know this to be true in our marriage relationships and our parent-child relationships. The same is true with God, our Heavenly Father. Love is not coercive. Love invites and love gives everything so that you might respond to it. This is what the psalmist is bearing witness to. That's God's posture toward us. I love this idea uh, that he says, hey Israel. So maybe I can just leave this. This is something practical. Leave this with you. Who right now would you fill in the blank with verse 7 and 8? 
What's the name that you're bringing to the doorstep in prayer and in your circles of influence? What's the name that you would substitute for Israel? Who's the person on your mind and on your heart that you're saying, oh, that they would put their hope and see unfailing love within life and love itself? Would you take that with you this week in prayer? And I love at the end what the psalmist says, full redemption. I want to give this to you. Here's some theology. And I want you to take this or take a picture of this and explore this as well. So that was something to pray. Here's something to read and to digest. I love that in him there's full redemption from our sins. Do you understand that there's three verb tenses in the New Testament for our salvation? Or if you grew up Baptist, for getting saved, y'all. There's this sense that we were saved. Someone, someone read Colossians chapter 1 and 2 tonight and just get blown up. And chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, you say, how many sins did Jesus forgive us for on the cross? Paul says, all of them. Yeah, but this one, like, I'm probably going to do tomorrow. Well, don't, but all of them are forgiven. And yet we walk around with a minor key chord because he's still mad at us in keeping score. And yet this thing that happened 2,000 years ago was big enough that Paul would say, oh yeah, dude, he forgave us all of our sins. There's this sense that we, we repent and we keep a clean slate and John will say, confess your sins because we need to get from out from under its influence and its corrosion, but understand that we're saved from the power and penalty of it 2,000 years ago. Jesus isn't dying again. That, that was done. So we were saved. Our first yes, we crossed over from death to life. When we said, yes, Jesus, your Lord, we're bought and brought from death to life. We were saved if you said yes to him. We are being saved. Here's an example of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 18. We are being saved. That would be our daily yes to follow him and to say yes to the Holy Spirit's leading. He's still forming us. That would be called sanctification. That's the theological term. And then ultimately, what's kind of going on in Psalm 130 for full redemption the end of exile, we will be saved. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, he talks about how there's this inheritance that's kept in heaven and is ready to be poured out on us when Jesus returns to make all things new. When we're all raised from the dead like Christ is and the world gets renewed. But the posture that I'll close with at the center of it all is going back to verses 5 and 6. We ain't got full redemption yet, so the posture that we have is to sit still. How many of you were struck by the repetition of that phrase, more than watchmen wait for the morning? And then you're like, oh, there's a typo. He says, more than watchmen wait for the morning. In the Psalms, repetition means pay attention. And that's the posture at the center of it all. And to illustrate it, I'll close with this idea that a couple weeks ago, I looked down 
and I noticed this olive-colored mark right here at the base of my middle finger and my palm, and I was like, that's weird, and so what do you do? You just, you go and wash your hands, and I'm like scrubbing, and I dry it off, and I'm like, okay, cool, and then I go on, and I'm like, oh, 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 man, oh, it's still there, and I was like, oh, yeah, I just mowed two yards, so I'm like, yeah, I'm a man, and that's some dirt right there, <laughs> right, Bobby? Where's my orange clean? I got to get some grit on it. So I like heavy-duty, high-powered scrub this sucker. And I'm like, okay. I dry it off, and it's still there. Okay, that's weird. Take a shower, still there. Next morning, okay, yeah, that's mm, gross. Yep. And then the next morning, I put my hand on the steering wheel, and I say, ouch. I've been on this earth more than three decades, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's a bruise. It's a bruise. It's a bruise. It's a bruise that I've tried to wash off no more than six times in the last 12 hours. You remember this? They're roasting me for a week because they're like, did it wash off yet? And I wrote it down because I'm like, there's an illustration. Isn't it something that we can work and scrub and treat the surface when what do you do with a bruise? There's nothing but time and rest. And it's fascinating that the central posture in the deep places to encounter a deeper grace, to wait and invite others, but then you invite others to what? Okay, sit, sit and watch. Sit and watch. Yeah, but I need a scrub. No, no, no. He didn't employ you to be a janitor. He employed you to be the night watchman. And the night watchman can stay awake and do his job and sit because he has this sense that there's a bigger job. There's the guy who hired me. There's somebody who owns the building. There's somebody who cares enough to bring people into it so that they could watch for the daylight. In ancient times, of course, you can imagine if you're out on the road, you had people sitting outside of the camp watching through the darkness for predators and for enemies. And then the light starts to peek over, and can't you feel the relief? Oh, good. I don't have to strain so much anymore. My shift is over. To sit at Zion and look beyond the wall for enemies. They sit there and they see the dawn begin to rise and they can say, okay, a new beginning is here. The end of the night brings a new beginning and the invitation for us when your impulse is to scrub and to work is to actually sit still and look with your whole being more than a watchman waits for the morning, more than a watchman waits for the morning, which is a certainty that dawn is coming and it ain't all up to me anyway. So God's posture toward us when we sit still we can sit still because waiting on God's light to break through the darkness is not a matter of if, but when. And we need to remind each other of this, especially when we're drowning and we're crying out and we're trying to taste the grace and we say, okay, I know he's forgiven me and redeemed me before, um, but and we say, no, 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 bring others, invite others, they'll bear witness to this too, but sit still and trust God.
To wait and to watch is the opposite of demanding God does what we say when we say it. It's to sit, trusting the owner of the building knows what to do and when to do it. So he's looking at the horizon, and look, the psalmist situation hasn't changed, but his focus has, and it changes him. Do you understand? When your situation, after 18 months of a global pandemic and the anxiety and the strain on the relationships, the strain on how you do work, the strain on how you do this, you've tried it all, you've realized it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, what are you looking toward? I wonder if when our situation hasn't changed, what would change in us if our focus did? You've been waiting and you've been watching, but what are you watching? Because the last note that you may not have noticed until now is this. There are four stanzas. There are eight verses. And the word Lord is there eight times. If you went back and you marked your Bible, you see Lord, 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 Lord. And for us watchmen, the work is to look at the Lord. To experience forgiveness. To cry out. To invite others to watch with us. And to sit and trust that with him is forgiveness and unfailing love. Amen. Amen. Church, whatever sin, setback, or struggle you may find yourself in this week, wait and watch for God. Wait even more than the watchmen on the graveyard shift count the minutes until daylight. Watch with open eyes and open hearts full of expectation that a new beginning awaits us. For with God's arrival comes unfailing love, and with God's arrival comes generous redemption. There is no doubt about it, He'll redeem us. God will buy us back from captivity to sin. So may you go into the world with assurance, hope, and promise. May the never-stopping love of God embrace you. May the never-exhausted grace of Christ surround you. May the never-ceasing presence of the Holy Spirit sustain you this day and all of our days. Go in peace.